Session tonight will be from James chapter 5, but we'll back up a little bit to James 4 for context in our reading. We'll read the first 10 verses of James 4 and then jump down to James 5. Remind you this is the inerrant word of our God. Give your close and careful attention to its reading. James 4, beginning at verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Chapter 5, then, in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. This is the word of our God. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And let's go to prayer again, asking for the illumination of the Spirit. Lord, our God, we confess our need again for your Spirit, both to the one who speaks and to those that hear, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and honoring in your sight. And so we do ask for your presence by your spirit even now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. In biblical law, and until more contemporaneous times, our justice system held to such a practice. A case before the court required not mere charges, but, a, but at least two to three witnesses in support 
of the charge. I say until contemporaneous times, it seems more and more that it's a matter of emotional appeal than it is about actual evidence. But God is true to his own standard of justice, and repeatedly throughout the scripture, he presents charges with evidence to support those charges. Most commonly to our knowledge, he does that throughout the Old Testament prophets. We see that repeatedly in the Old Testament where God brings a charge against his elect people, against his covenant people, and accuses them of things, and then substantiates that with evidence. But it's not out of place here in the New Testament either. And so we have such a circumstance here in James chapter 5. We have a charge brought against members of the church, members of the covenant. We have a charge brought against persons. And God substantiates that, substantiates that charge with evidence. Now, before we present that, it's been some time. It's been since March, the last time we... Uh, had an exhortation from James, and so given the time, we'll give a brief review of uh, James, the purpose of the letter, and where we are in that letter. Remember that James is a letter of encouragement to the scattered church. He opens up the letter to to the church of the dispersion, to the scattered church. These were Jews. You remember the history of uh, the history of the church just after Christ's ascension, Right, We read about this beginning in Acts, where the church grows and grows and thousands are added to it daily, and then the church is persecuted, and these Jewish Christians are scattered, they're dispersed abroad. And so the letter primarily, in its original audience, was written to these Jewish Christians that were scattered abroad, different countries and different nations, no longer in their own land. James, I believe, is the, uh, the one that writes this letter, is the brother of Jesus, who we read about in Acts 15, who writes the letter on behalf of the church, the council in Jerusalem, to the churches commending them uh, to observe right practices and not to revert to Judaism. But so James here is writing a letter to the scattered church to encourage them because they're suffering trials, they're being persecuted, they were persecuted to chase them out of their own land, they're being persecuted where they've gone, they're suffering trials. But the content of the letter is one of exhortation. It exhorts the the church to faithfulness and godliness in difficult circumstances, in trials and persecution. He encourages them to endure trials with joy. With perseverance, we remember how he opens the letter to the Christians. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, right? Something that we ourselves struggle with, even though none of us probably has endured any of the trials that that first church did. But we're to, he exhorts us to endure trials with joy and perseverance, remembering that even the trials are God's working and providence in our life. 
circumstances, my children have heard me say such things, your circumstances are no excuse for disobedience. And that's what James, in part, is telling the church. Just because you've been displaced and just because your circumstances are hard, that's no excuse for you to forget the things that you've been instructed in. And ultimately, then, your conduct must match your profession. We see that when we are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only in chapter 1, and that faith must be accompanied by works Our works give evidence of the faith that we profess. But he does also address very specific problems and sins, and this won't be an exhaustive list, but he he addresses the specific sins of an unguarded or uncontrolled tongue and speech, of slander, of bitterness, of pride and arrogance, of worldliness, or making a common cause and having a common purpose with the world. And part of what we read tonight in chapter 4 says such worldliness is enmity with God. And so he addresses these specific problems and sins. And now in the text before us in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit by James gives further warning against worldliness or making common cause with the world in the matter of your wealth. The Spirit gives further warning against worldliness in the matter of your wealth. We'll see three things. We'll look at this in three under three headings. First, the charge and accusation, and then the witnesses and the evidence, and then finally the judgment and the solution to it. So charge and accusation, witnesses and evidence, judgment and solution. Let's read again. Chapter 5, these first six verses, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The first place, then, is consider the charge and accusation that the Spirit brings against, will address against whom he brings it. In a moment. This is found in verse 3b and verses 5 and 6. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. You have lived in the earth, on the earth, in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So, against whom then is this charge addressed? In verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich. And commentators are divided on this. Is this every rich man that's being addressed here? Or is this a select number of the rich? And I think given the context of the letter that James is writing, he's addressing members of the church. 
he's addressing as he begins at the, at, in this letter with those of the dispersion, those who have been scattered abroad. And so there's no other uh, contextual note to say that he's changing uh, his address. In fact, this matches the previous verses where he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow. And here it's following that he's speaking to the church, to members of the church. And so as he begins this next section, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. He's addressing those inside the church, not outside the church. And so the charge is against the wealthy within the church. But what have they done? In verse 3b, you've heaped up treasure in the last days. They've hoarded wealth to the hurt and even the death of others. We see that in verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the just. He does not resist you. But it's really the hoarding of the wealth. He's heaped up treasure. He's lived in pleasure and luxury in verse 5. He's fattened his heart. Right, all of these things he's amassed to himself at the expense of others. Wealth, a great hoard it seems. He's keeping it for himself, keeping it to himself. But it's to the hurt and even at times to the death of others. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. And so there is no concern. We've been called over and over again through the epistles of the scripture to remember one another as members together of one body. When one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And so in its essence, here the rich man hoarding wealth to himself at the hurt and even to the death of other members of the church is contrary to his own profession. It's contrary to his own vows. It's a contradiction to his own profession of faith. Instead of encouraging and building one another up in the midst of persecution and trial, he's amassing and hoarding selfishly his own wealth. We can envision the parable of the rich man who's in the midst of a harvest and decides that he needs to build new grain elevators, storage bins for his grain, and says, look at my wealth, look at my fortune. And yet that night, God comes for him. He has no chance to spend it, but he hasn't shared it. He hasn't sought out to help the poor, the weak, the needy. Rather, he was hoarding to himself his own wealth, But it's to the hurt and the death, especially this, is, this charge is that the hoarding of the wealth is to the hurt and the death of others, even other members of the church. You've condemned, you've murdered the just, he does not resist you. You've murdered the just? As James has said earlier, if you break one part of the law, you break all of the law. He goes on in the evidence and says, you have by fraud kept payment from those who have done your labor. He's lied. 
he's stolen. And that has led, obviously, in some cases, to the death of those that have done the work and yet have not been paid for it. It appears that that's the case. You've condemned and murdered the just. They've done work for you. You've not paid them. You've kept that money back by fraud. And as you have broken one part of the law, as you've stolen their wages, as you've lied in your contract, that has led ultimately to their death. And then you're guilty of their murder. And so here's the charge. You've hoarded wealth to the hurt and even death of others. Maybe you'll say then, but certainly that's not us. It doesn't sound like us. It doesn't sound like any of us in this room. But let me ask you, have you withheld your tithe, which God has commanded of us? Have you refused the mercy ministry of the church to assist those in need? but especially when it's in your power and ability to help. Not everyone is equally equipped and able to help. Not everyone is equally capable to give to the mercy ministry or help those in need. God is not certainly commanding your poverty just for the enrichment of others. So that's not being said. And God is not condemning wealth. Proverbs commends the rich or the righteous man to have some degree of wealth that he can pass on to his children and grandchildren. So God is not commanding your poverty in order to make others rich. He's also not commanding or condemning wealth. And so again, we ask, but certainly this isn't speaking to us. But have you refused to help? Have you refused to aid when it's in your power and ability to? Have you stolen from your employer, not giving him the work that you have contracted to give him? These may not be directly the, the charges that are laid here, but they are ways in which we can amass for ourselves and hoard to ourselves wealth that is really to the hurt of others. We're commanded to give to our employers the work that we've agreed to give. Sloth in our own employment is taking someone else's wealth for ourselves, And that's part of the evidence that is presented here against the rich of the church. But more fully... What God is condemning here is the exaltation of wealth and the promotion of it at the expense and the hurt of others, but especially within the church. He condemns as well the justification of sin for the sake of something which is not in itself condemned. It's not wrong to amass wealth. It's not wrong to work hard and to put money away, and to have good things, and a a comfortable life. But it is wrong 
to justify sin for such a thing. How else might we see this worked out in our lives when we accommodate abortion and euthanasia, for for example, for convenience or financial well-being? These are arguments that are often given. to justify abortion, and increasingly to justify euthanasia. It's a financial burden. I'm going to take away the wealth of someone else by living. Instead, this falls under this heading, you have condemned and murdered the just, he does not resist you. Consider how we have murdered the just by aborting the infants who have not ability to resist. And we do so for our own convenience and financial so-called well-being. And maybe, again, that is not us individually, but it may apply to us. We know that there are many who profess the name of Christ that still support such things. And so the charge is applicable still to us in our day. And so the charge and accusation that the Spirit brings against the rich. Let's then consider the witnesses and evidence. This is more briefly considered in verses 2 and 3a and 4. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, your corrosion will be, or in their corrosion rather, will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The first, the first witness then is, that the wealth of the world is like the world and is rotting, corroding, corrupting, deteriorating. In the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, the amassing of wealth to preserve one's life, we know from the history of the world, has not always succeeded. In fact, many times the amassing of wealth to escape the corruption of the world actually brings you into the corruption of the world. And so the wealth of the world is like the world itself. The riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. The gold and silver are corroded. These are passing. They cannot get you to the other side. They can't in themselves earn you anything. They can't get you to eternity. They're corroded. And the corrosion itself, the Spirit says, is a witness against you. And so the wealth of the world is rotting, corroding, corrupting, deteriorating, but eating up those that are hoarding it. If you like certain genres of literature, you can think of smaug, 
in The Hobbit and how the gold and the wealth that he sat on rotted and ate away at him. And so it is, a picture for us here, the gold and silver corroded as a witness against you, eating your flesh like fire. And so it's the first witness. What is your primary objective? What is your primary goal? Where your where is your heart? Your heart is there with your treasure. Is your heart in eternity? No, it is here with the corroding, passing, deteriorating wealth of the world. But the further witnesses are the wages of the laborers and the cries of the reapers. But they cry out to God himself. But the Spirit wants to emphasize to whom these cries reach. They reach the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God who is in charge of all the heavens and everything in it. Here's the cry. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth accounts for sin and injustice, just as he did with the blood of Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Yahweh appeared and said, where is your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? We know this. And Yahweh says, your brother's blood cries out to me. Abel's blood reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, just as the wages of the laborers who were kept back by fraud have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, and they bring witness and evidence of fraud and theft and lying. And following down to verse 6, we see the connection as we've already as we've already described it, the connection to the murder of the just. And so God has presented a charge against his people, against members of his covenant church. And it's not a baseless charge. There are many witnesses. The wealth on which you sit, the cries of those whom you've defrauded. These are all witnesses against the rich, against those unjustly dealing with one another in the church. And so with the charge and the evidence then there is a pronouncement of judgment. And so we consider briefly again the judgment and the solution to it. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. You're in the midst of persecution and trial. You're amassing and hoarding a wealth that isn't yours to the 
uh, hurt of others, to the death of others. And the evidence is mounting to the heavens as high as the heap of treasure that you are hoarding. But you won't escape the judgment. The miseries that are coming upon you, I think, have reference to the persecutions that they are enduring. You won't escape these. In the history of the world, we've seen how rich men have managed to escape controversy for a time. How they've escaped uh, death in the midst of war for a time. But eventually, their money is needed as well. But eventually, they're another obstacle to our progress. And so, the rich man here, having amassed a wealth, having amassed a fortune, having hoarded it, will not escape the misery of the persecution and the trial that he endures. He won't be able to buy his way out of it. And so we might ask, well, is there any way out of such a misery? And there is a solution. It's not presented boldly here, but it is referred to. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. It takes us back just a few verses, which we, which we even read when, uh, just a few verses before, when uh, James says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. What is the solution? You want to escape the persecution. You want to escape the trials. Don't use these circumstances as an opportunity to defraud one another, to oppress further your brothers and sisters. Don't try to buy your way out of it. But humble yourself. As we said in the uh, summary of this book, we remember that part of James' appeal in enduring trials with joy and perseverance is to remember that God is working, and it is his providence that has brought this upon them. And so, in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You want to endure? You want to make it through? It's not a matter of wealth. You want to uh, make it through the persecution. You want to uh, overcome the trials. The solution is humbling yourself. As he says, weep and howl. It reminds us to lament and mourn, which drives us to humbling ourselves. There is a solution. Pastor Fincham's been preaching about it through Revelation. There's a solution to the judgment of God. Fall upon God, fall upon Christ. There's a solution to enduring the trials and persecutions that, we f- that we'll face. And it looks 
day by day, more and more likely that we will face some of these persecutions that that early church endured. But you can't buy your way out of it. You can't escape it by further oppressing others. So how do we how do we avoid this? How do we endure this? How do we overcome it? Well, the avoidance is God's providence. You might not avoid it. But how do you endure and overcome? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Where is your trust? Where is your hope? Is it in the, wit- the riches that you're amassing, that you're hoarding, that you're keeping to yourself, to the hurt and death of others? Or do you trust that God will provide for you day by day? Again, James does not condemn wealth in itself. James does not condemn you uh, working hard and amassing some degree of fortune that you can pass on as an inheritance to your children and grandchildren. But he does condemn riches that are heaped up, that are hoarded at the expense and hurt and even the death of others, and especially of those brothers and sisters within the church. In the midst of uncertain circumstances, when our government is enacting policies that seem to make our money worth less, We may be tempted more to the charge that's laid here before the feet of the wealthy of the church. We may be tempted, or we may be tempted rather, to amass an unjust pile of treasure. And that is what's condemned that we would heap up for ourselves treasure on earth rather than treasure in heaven, that we would do it at the expense of others, even brothers and sisters in the church, even to the point that they might perish because of their lack. Do we really submit? Have we really submitted ourselves to the providence of God and humbled ourselves in his sight? Do we trust that he then will lift us up and bring us through persecution and trial. Brothers and sisters, unless God intervene, and especially for you children, this seems to be in your future. Take then to heart the warning that the Holy Spirit gives against corrupted wealth. The warning that the Holy Spirit gives against worldliness in the matter of your wealth. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we do confess that we are easily enticed. We are easily enticed by the wealth of this world. We pray that you would keep us from uh, pursuing that in an idolatrous way but that even in our getting of wealth, that we would submit to you and that we would get it honestly. 
for our good and even for the benefit of your church. We pray that we would remember that the wealth that is ours, you have given to us. And we pray that we might use it to the glory of your name and even to the furthering of your kingdom. We ask that you would guard us against selfishness and against idolatry in days of trial and persecution that may be coming. But we are even bold now to pray, Father, that you might stay your hand of judgment, that you might be pleased to uh, keep your judgment from us, by granting us a humble submission and reliance to you. Teach us then to humble ourselves in order that you might lift us up, that you might provide for our daily needs, even as Christ himself has taught us to pray for them. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.